And I know you're all really excited all of a sudden. But there are two kinds of experiences you can have in life. You can have an experience where the comfort is first and the discomfort is later, like our hot dog barbecue that we're going to have after here. You're not catching it, but there we go. (laughs) Or trips to the dentist where it's not really fun being there, but you're really glad you don't have a cavity in your tooth afterwards when you're done. And this one is the one where it's going to end on a high note, but not necessarily feel good every step along the way. Um, we're, I'm, I want to talk about Romans until summer's over. And we're kind of doing a back to the basics for our faith. This happens every once in a while where I just get this bug where I need to just talk about the basics. I, I'm happy talking about spiritual gifts. I love getting up here and telling everybody to put your smartphones away because... Um, You're not using them as phones, and they don't make anybody any smarter. I'm happy to talk about practical messages like that, and they're all on the website, but um, every once in a while I get get bit, and we, we need to talk about the basics of being a Christian, the basics of Jesus, because that's the best part. That's the best part. We're having a hot dog barbecue, and if you take out the bun and the hot dog, you can have a lot of interesting things in your hand, but you're not having a hot dog. The best part is the bun and the hot dog, and everything else is gravy, except I don't think we have gravy today. It's just the saying, the, the basics of our faith is the best part. Okay, and so last time we got together, we talked about um, how we are saved by faith and how this makes us totally unique in the world. There is no other philosophy or other religion that says you can have it all by having a trusting look towards God. And God will give you everything if you will believe Him and believe in Him. He will give you everything if you turn to Him in trust. And that's what makes Christianity totally unique. That's what makes following Jesus totally unique. And today I want to talk about the second part of what makes our faith totally unique, and that's um, what the Scripture says about sin. Father, help me. God, would you come right now? Lord, we are people who love fun, and, uh, but if we're going to walk in the truth, it's not going to be pleasant every step of the way. So I pray you'd help us to hear what the Spirit is saying. I pray that you'd help us to just uh, to care about the truth, and I pray that you'd help me be a true servant of your word. Lord, I love you, and I want to lift up Jesus in the name of Jesus and everything you've done through Jesus. And so, Lord, would you give us all together what we need to have ever-increasing faith in our good God? and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What do you think is wrong with the world? What do you think is the world's problem? Okay, I've heard a few snickers, um, so you're already right there. Everybody knows that there's a problem with the world. Everybody knows this. This is one thing we have in common. Everybody knows that there are, there's an issue the things we don't agree on are what is the issue, and then from there, how, what is the solution? What fixes it? Okay, but everybody believes that there's something wrong with the world. And that's, that's everybody in here. You think there's a problem with this planet, with life. And you probably think there's a solution. And it may even involve with everybody just listening to you for once. I won't say amen to that because I don't want to encourage it, but 
There is a, a legendary story. I, it could be true, but um, people are trying to f- find evidence for it. Um, that it's about 100 years ago, one of the newspapers in England sent out a question to lots of important people and intellectuals, and they asked them the question, what's wrong with the world? And they wanted them to submit these articles to the newspaper and then sell the newspaper, and wouldn't it be wonderful? And they invited an author named G.K. Chesterton, who I really enjoy, to respond to this question. And the, uh, the story goes that he sent them back a simple letter that said, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Everybody's got an answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? Most of our answers aren't as gracious and humble as just saying, me. I'm the issue. Uh, so I picked up a few which, of the answers to what's wrong with the world and thought about the solutions that we propose that are very popular nowadays in our culture and see if you have noticed this as well. Uh, one of the big answers is that what's wrong with the world is inequality of possessions. Some people have more stuff. Other people don't have enough stuff. Some people have free health care. Other people don't have free health care. Um, some people are richer than other people, and that's the problem. That's the problem with the world. And if we all just had more stuff, or if we all just had enough stuff, then everything would be okay. Have you ever heard people talking like that before? That's where you, um, you have philosophies like Marxism or socialism or communism who have given it their best chance to take everything, possess everything as the government and be in control of how much everybody has. And uh, they have actually been utter failures in human history and usually resulted in the deaths or starvations of tens of millions of people. But that doesn't stop us from trying. Again, everybody needs to have more stuff. And if we can pass laws to make that happen, then everything will be okay. And in Canada, the most recent one would be this idea of a living wage, where the government just guarantees that everybody gets a certain amount of money, no matter what you're doing. The idea behind that is what's wrong with the world is that some people have more stuff than other people and we can fix it by taking some things from some people and giving it to other people. And once we accomplish that, everything will be okay. Other people see that the main problem with the world has to do with relationships between men and women or the inequality of the sexes. And if we could just fix that, then everything would be okay. And there's various attempts to fix that, whether it has to do with voting rights or possession, property rights um, or um, people being able to do any job and all the jobs no matter what and uh, people being able to have the kind of sexual activities they want and, and without it being a guarantee that one of those people is going to get pregnant and not the other kind of people. If we could just solve that issue and make it a 50-50 chance that men or man or the woman is going to end up pregnant... Once we get that done, then everything's going to be okay. And you can hear that conversation playing out in our discourse, in our, in our politics. What's wrong with the world is that men and women treat each other wrong, and it's mostly the men treating the women wrong. And if we could just stop that, then everything will be okay. Other people think that the main problem with the world has to do with inequality of people groups or racism or how certain people groups have treated other people groups. And if we could just get the people groups to treat the other people groups okay, everything would be all right. And so in the Western world, I mean like Canada and North America, it mostly has to do with racism 
and people with lighter skin mistreating people with darker skin or people with darker skin mistreating people with lighter skin. And if those skin tones could just start treating the other skin tones better, everything would be okay. And that's kind of a Western thing because you can go to other countries um, like Rwanda, for instance, has had some major issues with different tribes, so much so that it spilled over into a genocide about 20 years ago. Um, the problem with us from the West is that we look at them and they all have roughly the same skin color. And so we don't know which, how to apply our racism solutions to it when they appear to be all the same race, but they're tribes instead of races. But they still manage to get into people groups that treated each other poorly. And we have different ideas of how to respond to this situation. So, for instance, in Rwanda, they have a don't talk about it solution. Okay, so it is against the law to ask somebody which tribe they're a part of. Is this correct? Okay, it is correct. It is against the law. So if I flew out there and I was going around to people and I was saying, so are you a Hutu or a Tutsi? And, and I just kept doing that. See, Dave is already feeling uncomfortable. Even though we're in Canada, he just knows what would happen. I would probably see the end of a barrel rather quickly. And if I was lucky, I would just be shown to an airplane. And if I was unlucky, into a prison cell. It is against the law to ask people what tribe they are because they're trying to solve the problem of people groups. And in the Western world, we tend to try to solve that problem by not, not talking about it, but by always talking about it, so that everything is racial. Everything is racism, everything's white privilege, everything, everything, everything. If there's a problem, it, we need to find the skin color that is the problem and fix it by making a law to make them not do it. I'm not even sure. We're so far down the rabbit hole on that one. These are problems, but they are not the problem. These are issues, but they are not the issue. They are symptoms of the issue at best, but they are not the issue. And unless we figure out for sure what the problem is, all of our solutions are just going to make things worse. Do you want to just make things worse? Thank you. One person doesn't. So you need to know what the problem is. You need to know what the world's problem is if you ever want to be, hope to be part of the solution. So let's turn to Scripture where God speaks to us. In the book of Romans, Paul the Apostle, through the Holy Spirit, tells us from God's perspective, which is the right one, what the world's problem is, starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. And there's a reason we have to look at this, okay? It's not like I'm just a downer Dan and I enjoy making people feel uncomfortable. I actually like making people laugh, which is why I don't mind when people ask me to do an auction every once in a while. (laughs) But an evangelist once said to his son, Johnny, it's not hard to get people saved. It's really hard to get people lost. It's not hard to get people saved. It's really hard to get people lost. Nobody goes for chemotherapy unless a doctor reveals to you you have a tumor. And then that becomes really important. So unless we know we have a tumor, we actually aren't going to enjoy Jesus or believe the gospel. 
be very excited about it. What does God say is the problem with the world? Romans 1.18. And by the way, I've got my sermon notes at the back in the welcome center there. If you start feeling lost, you can move over there and try to find your spot here. Or if you just want to take these notes home to think through it, you're welcome to do that. God says that this is the problem. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the world's problem. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their ungodliness or unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the problem. There is a God. There is a humanity. And humanity is using sin to lie about God. And God is responding with wrath against humanity. That is the problem. That is the core issue. That is the base issue. That is the main issue. Christianity is about sin, and it's about really dealing with sin. The biggest issue of your life and my life is sin and our relationship with God and whether or not we're saved in Jesus Christ or apart from him and still under the wrath of God. Let me just say, nothing gets better when you're under the wrath of God. If God has said, I'm against you, there is nothing that a person can do to make things better. All right. So I want to walk through Romans a little bit more because it's really easy to presume things about what this means. And I really especially want to define what the wrath of God looks like because we can think it just means thunderbolts and lightning coming down on you or zapping you or losing money or going to the horse track and never coming home with the big win. It's really important that we understand what the wrath of God looks like according to God's description. But this is the explanation of the situation. Romans 19 and following. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, so God's godness is on display in his creation, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so here's the human situation. God has put on display how awesome he is in the sky and the earth and the sea and the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and the birds and the cows and the dogs and the donkeys and the horses and the little itty-bitty dragonflies and the big fat dragonflies and supremely in human beings. You are the greatest evidence of God in the world. So much so that nobody can say, I don't know who God is. God says, you know enough about me. You've been living in my world for 20 years. Every single second of every single day, enjoying my masterpiece and being it. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This has always stunned me. God saying, I have totally put myself on display through my creation. And the thing that went wrong is that people didn't want to say thank you. We think that thankfulness is kind of just this thing 
that you can do when you need an emotional pick-me-up. The universe has been destroyed by human beings just saying, I don't want to say thanks to him. Crazy. And so in this situation where God has revealed himself and human beings have not wanted to treat him as God and say thanks to him like he's God and respond to him like he's God, but instead turn to other things to be God, God has responded with wrath and his wrath is um, expressed in three giving ups. Okay, so not lightning bolts, not thunderstorms, not earthquakes. It's three kinds of handing overs or giving overs that we can read about. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonoring passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Verse 28, therefore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and he goes on from there and you can read it. That is the wrath of God that is described in scripture that is the problem of the world. God made everything and it was awesome. We said, we don't want to give you the glory for it. We want to give other things the glory, including ourselves. God said, if that's the way you want to live, you can have all of it that you can ever handle. If you don't want to glory in me, you don't want your desire to be for my glory, I hand you over to corrupted desires. Lusts for each other, lusts for pride, lusts for anything, you just can't desire right anymore. You don't want to know me as creator and worship me as creator, I rob from you the ability to be my creation created you with a body that was meant to be used a specific way, especially sexually, and now you can't know how to use your body right anymore and instead will want to use it in all kinds of ways which are dishonoring to God and to man. You don't want to think about me rightly? Fine, don't ever think right about anything ever again. I hand you over to being incapable of thinking straight. And yes, we can do math. Yes, we can invent smartphones, but what we can never do is no God in how we think. And instead, we think we're smart when we want to get revenge on people. We think we're smart when we slander people. We think we're smart when we rebel against our parents. We think we're smart when we're God-haters. We think we're smart when we're doing all kinds of self-destructive things. And these are evidences of things not being right with God. Do you feel lost yet? Somebody once said that Christianity's gift to the world is the most hopeless evaluation of the human situation ever. What I mean by this is that there is no philosophy or religion in the world that is so hopeless about human beings as biblical, scriptural Christianity. We can't fix it. When things went wrong, God handed us over to things only being able to get worse. You like sin? Then drink from the fire hose. Then Paul goes on to express two wrong ways of responding to this truth. Okay? If this is the problem, then we start going for solutions. Oh man, we got to fix this. we got to fix this. 
If this is the real problem, we got we got to do something. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. We're going to get our Navy SEALs together. We're going to fix this. Two ways of responding to this situation that only make things worse. Chapter 2 starts off with the first wrong way, and that is seeking self-righteousness by judging other people. 2 verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you judge Because you, the judge, practice the same things. If we don't have righteousness before God, the first most natural instinct is to try to gain a self-righteousness by judging other people, by comparing ourselves with other people, by deciding how we're we're doing better. Okay, This this is what people do. Um, I remember reading a book by a guy, I can't remember his name, it's called Addiction and Grace, and he was a doctor and his... Um, mission, ministry, career was helping people get off of cocaine and alcohol in one of these recovery centers. And he said, I'm writing this book because I observed something. I observed that when I work with the people who are addicted to cocaine, they say, well, at least I'm not an alcoholic. Like, so I need a little pick-me-up every once in a while. I need something to speed me up. And I've made some bad choices in my life, but at least I'm not some drop-dead drunk. And then he goes to his next meeting with the alcoholics, and they say, I've made some bad choices, and yes, sometimes I drink a little too much, and I did get into that car accident, and yes, my family left me, but at least I'm not some stoner. At least I'm not some cokehead, some gang-banging cokehead. And he was just so stunned that here are people who have utterly destroyed their lives to the place where they need to be in a recovery center, and they're both holding on to a little bit of self-righteousness. At least I'm not like that other person in here. That's what we do. That's what we do. The other thing that we can do is we can try to achieve a kind of self-righteousness by... um, religious performance. And what he does, what Paul does here is he starts tackling the Jews that are living in this church because they would be the ones looking at the world and saying, yeah, the world's a messed up place. Just messed up. Those pagans and their pagan temples and their pagan relationships and their pagan children and their pagan way of doing things. Messed up. I'm glad I'm a Jew. I got the law. I got my circumcision. Um, I'm ready. I'm here to help. And he goes after them and he says, Okay, so you have the law, but do you break the law? And the answer is yes. So how are you any better? And so he writes to them in in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and he, then he quotes a bunch of verses from the scriptures that talks about how terrible people are. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this is the problem. We've rebelled against God. And he's handed us over to our rebellion so that all of our best ideas only make things worse. And our attempts at self-righteousness by comparing to one another don't fix the problem of human sin in our heart. In fact, they only invite God to come and investigate just how righteous we are. 
which doesn't work out. It, it really is hopeless for the world. Guys, we need to tell each other this every once in a while. It really is hopeless for the world unless God does something. That's why we do evangelism. That's why missions exist. They have no hope. We needed a but now. We needed God to do something. So we have a but now. And I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read a portion of Scripture, and I want you to listen to what God has done in the face of the world's problem, which is our rebellion against sin, against God, and His righteous anger, His righteous judgment against Him. But now the righteousness of God this right standing before God, this being declared by God to be okay with Him, this being in a situation where we're not under His judgment, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's God's solution. On the one hand, we have the holy, good, awesome, just, right, loving, joyful God. On the other hand, in this corner, we have his contender, the rebellious, angry, proud, self-righteous, God-hating, barren-hating, gossip-loving, slander-loving humanity. And it is a fight, unless God does something. And so what God does, saying... I cannot compromise my holiness and justice because me turning myself into the devil does not rescue anybody. We need a solution forward to make peace between God and man that is holy, righteous, and just and solves all the problem of rebellion, pride, and self-righteousness. And he invented the cross. And God, by his own wisdom, on his own initiative, out of his own love, and his own mercy, and his own grace, and his own wisdom, sent his own son to this planet to live the perfect, holy, just life of perfect obedience to the Father, rejecting, rejecting God, sinning against sin by obeying God, and being willing to, in the Garden of Gethsemane, completely submit his will to the will of the Father, going to the cross, and on the cross, God pouring out on his son all his wrath and the just punishment that people deserve to the point of him dying shedding his own blood 
and his blood breaking the chains of both the wrath of God being against us and us being a slave to our own sin. Slavery to sin is the wrath of God. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is? It's God saying you love sin, it's going to be your boss for the rest of your life until it destroys you. It's going to be your pimp. It's going to be your slave master. It's going to ravage you until you're destroyed. And the salvation of God is breaking that chain and setting free. That is the salvation. That Jesus came and became sin and God judged him as sin so that through faith in him we are totally at peace with God. That's what that word propitiation means. Do you remember it from last week? Last two weeks ago, propitiation. It's a church word. We have the best words. Okay, you may have heard other people claim that before. We have the best words. And propitiation is one of the best words. It is a sacrifice that makes peace with God by taking away guilt and wrath. And this state of being totally at peace with God is given to you as a gift. Number one, so that you're set free from having to earn it. And number two, you're set free from the temptation of being proud that you earned it. You just get it as a free gift and you receive it by faith. You receive it by having an expectant, trusting look at Jesus saying, rescue me. I'm looking to you to rescue me. That's how you receive it. This is God's solution to the problem. This is the cross. And a way that you can think about it, if you want to think about it like this, is that the cross brings us into this rejection-free zone with God. Okay? If the wrath of God is being rejected, okay, you don't want me, you don't get me, the cross of Christ through the blood of Jesus brings us into a relationship with God where rejection is no longer on the table. Yeah, you're going to sin. You're going to fail. You're going to fall down. But by faith in Jesus, you're in a rejection-free zone. The wrath of God is over in your life. That kind of final condemnation is done. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are existing in a rejection-free zone with Jesus. That is God's solution to the problem. And you receive it by looking to Jesus. Okay. Now I'm going to take my gloves off for real. You thought this was tough already. This is really important. Because this morning, I am going after backseat Christianity. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kind of Christian who's carrying around with themselves shame and guilt in God's presence so that when they come to church or when they come to God, they choose to sit in the backseat because they, they want to be saved and they know they like Jesus, but they're pretty convinced that in God's heart of heart, he really doesn't like them and he hasn't totally forgiven them. So they're just going to sit at the back and they're going to be here and kind of worship a little bit, but they're not going to go all out with Jesus because he's probably not all out for them. 
And usually what happens is maybe you grew up in the church and you were kind of like, I went to Sunday school and I sang the songs and I know that the answer is Jesus. Whenever they ask you a question, the answer is Jesus. You know, who loves you? Jesus. Who died on the cross? Jesus. What's seven times seven? Probably Jesus if Jesus is the numerical number for 49. You know, whatever it is, or 45, whatever, forget it. Matt's not my strong suit. I'm a book guy. Um, (laughs) You come... And maybe, maybe you grew up in the church and then something happened. You, maybe you fell away or you did stuff you didn't like or people started thinking about you a certain way and you fell away for a time and now you're coming back because you're like, I actually want to have a kind of relationship with God, but because of everything I've done and everything I feel about myself or everything I've ever heard, I'm just going to be in the back row and I'm going to be here because I want to go to heaven. And maybe Jesus has a job for a janitor there. Maybe somebody needs to scrub the toilets in heaven and I'll be there to do that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, no, I, I am on fire with jealousy, the jealousy of Jesus Christ for your heart this morning. Okay. We need to hear Romans one, because the truth is, is that we are a naturally monstrous kind of creature. We are absolutely terrible all on our own. Whether you went to Sunday school or not, apart from Jesus, we're monsters. And so if God chose to sacrifice his son for monsters when he knows how bad we really are in our heart of heart, who cares if we discover at 35 that we can look at pornography? You want to carry around that chain for the rest of your life? Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. The cross was designed to save the worst of sinners. Okay, you hear me? The cross was designed to absorb the shame and the guilt of the worst of us. It was designed to utterly destroy every kind of condemnation that can ever come against sinners. Because when we were at our worst, that's when God decided to send His Son to save sinners. That's when He put the blood of Jesus on the cross to satisfy by his righteousness and now he gives righteousness by a gift by a gift by a gift by a gift if you buy a business and you earn a million dollars congratulations if somebody writes you a check for a million dollars and you cash it and you've done nothing who's richer who's richer who's richer if you get a million by a gift it's the same It's the same. It's the same. And so we're called by faith to look to Jesus and just say, all of the righteousness of God is mine just by looking and receiving it by faith. Not doing anything but trusting that the God of heaven, the holy God who has the right to judge me, has instead decided to justify a sinner by free grace. Okay, and so I'm calling every one of us, search your hearts. Isn't it true that you're actually a bit of a judger? Isn't it true that you kind of think, well, I never slept around, so I guess I'm okay. Garbage. Isn't it true that I've never been a drunk, so I guess I can serve as a youth leader. Garbage. I've never did it, did it, did it, and so I'm okay. Wrong, 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 wrong. We're not okay. Unless we're in Jesus. But when we're in Jesus, we have the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of God as a free grace. That's what the cross was all about. Is God solving the problem and us receiving it and receiving it and receiving it. So nobody here is called to have a life where you're kind of like, well, I think I'm going to heaven because I signed a card, but I'm pretty sure that God doesn't like me. Because I don't like me. 
okay, fine, don't, don't like you, but don't, don't slander God when he loves you, when he sent his son to die for you. Don't, don't put that on him. And we do that. We do that. We sin. We let ourselves down and we say, well, God must not really like me anymore. And I don't want him to judge me. I don't want to feel judged by him. So I'm going to judge myself and I'm going to run. Or I'm going to turn. I'm going to hide. We totally do that. I see it all the time. We do all the time. And you know what the cost is? Everybody in this church loses a little. Because you don't know Jesus like he is. And you don't get as free as you're called to be. And you don't turn around and serve in love like you're called to serve in love. Everybody else loses out when we're running from, from, from free grace. I heard a story one time about a guy who took his uh, family to a friend's house. And when they got there, the, the, the new family, family number two, had a really big dog. Have you ever seen a big dog before? There's some really big dogs out there. Not my five-pound long-haired chihuahua. That thing could fit in the left cheek of a really big dog. (laughs) Really big dogs look to me like waves crashing on a rocky shore covered in fur. It's just all kinds of power and motion just rumbling around. You're like, can this thing even stop if it starts running? Plus it has teeth and a hard time with self-control. That's a, that's a big dog. Power, teeth, and a lot of... I wasn't supposed to bite that? Sorry. <laughs> and this big dog comes ch- running out of the house and is very interested in the new little kids who have shown up. And the owner of the dog says, don't worry, the dog's really friendly. He just doesn't like it when you run away from him. Right? Because if you run, then they, they bark and chase. He's really friendly. He just he doesn't like it when you run away from it. And that is such a picture of the God of grace. When the Father has sacrificed His Son and sent His Spirit and done everything for us, everything for us, when we were unbelievably evil, the one thing that He doesn't like is when we try to run away. When we turn away. That's the one thing that messes this up is when we turn away instead of turning to Jesus in faith. So I'm really jealous for for your hearts. I don't want anybody at Calvary Chapel being a backseat Christian where you you just show up because you still want something, but you're not looking and believing that you have the righteousness of Christ as a gift, which is capable of overcoming all shame, all guilt, all self-righteousness and all pride. I'm, I'm hungry for you for Jesus' sake. And this morning, I'm nothing, but I am a servant of Jesus, and I'm just calling you. God has taken down every wall. Don't you try to keep some of them up. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross. By a free gift, you get the righteousness of God. Father, I just thank you so much for this truth. Father, I'm, I'm grateful that Paul took the time to explain how bad things were from your perspective so that we could know how good you are and what treasure we have in you. Father, I pray you'd stir up our hearts to love people well because the free gift of grace is offered to all the world. And there is nobody too far gone.
Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us lay hold of your gift of grace through faith so that we won't just be carrying around the weights of shame and guilt, self-condemnation, which is just another form of judging, but instead to believe that you really, really have redeemed us through Jesus. Amen.